The Bible has a number of examples of brothers who went different directions in life. Joseph and the rest of his brothers. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. Solomon and Absalom. And in Jesus' famous parable, a fictional story, a younger prodigal and an older brother. They illustrate that there are really two ways to live, two ways to respond to God in life. And in our passage this afternoon, we meet the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their true story is also one about two ways that we can live, in repentance and faith or rebellion and sin. And that's still true today. And it is the same choice that we face. We're reading this morning from Genesis chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to it now, whether it's on your phone or in your lap. And if you need a Bible, as Jason mentioned, there are some Bibles at the back of the room on the small table at the very back door. You're welcome to raise your hand and if you'd like one of those Bibles to be brought to you. And if you get one of those Bibles, you can keep it as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have that. Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to be studying all 26 verses, beginning in verse 1. Let me read to you. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our eyes to the destructiveness of sin and the restoring power of grace that you offer us in Jesus and his gospel. Amen. Well, if you had to say the sermon in one sentence, here's how I would say it to you. Unrepentant sin will grow worse and spread, but God offers hope to those who call on Him in faith. Unrepentant sin will grow worse and spread, but God offers hope to those who call on Him in faith. That's the sermon in a sentence. Last week we explored the greatest disaster that man has ever known. Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent and they disobeyed God. They felt shame for the first time. They ran and hid from God. They blamed one another and God too. And God told them what the consequences would be. Childbirth and work became painful and difficult. And rather than rule over the earth and everything in it, they would be constantly tempted to rule over and dominate one another. Marital conflict was born. And they were driven from the garden that God had prepared for them to live. But there was a ray of hope in all that God had told them. God made a promise. The offspring of the woman would battle the offspring of the serpent. And one day, the offspring from the woman would be wounded, but he would ultimately defeat the offspring of the serpent. God's promises are true. The story of the Bible shows that things would get worse, though, before the battle was won. And that leads us into our first point of three points total this morning. And that is, unrepentant sin will grow worse in a person. Unrepentant sin will grow worse in a person. 
unrepentant sin is disobedience to God, which we willfully continue in. We may not like that sin. We may cry out to God about it, but still we continue in it. We don't take steps to kill it, to cut it off, to obey God instead. When we let sin rule us, then its destructive hold on us will grow worse. And we see that clearly in the life of Cain, the firstborn son to Adam and Eve. Look again at verse 1. The chapter begins with a sign of hope and joy despite the man and his wife being driven out of the garden. God gave them a child. It says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Knowing is often how the Bible describes sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife. It's an indication of how their physical union should be matched by relational closeness and by an understanding and a love between them. That's God's ideal. It's His design. And Eve declares that it's with the help of the Lord that she's given birth. Even having sinned, Eve's statement reflects her faith in God. She calls Him by His covenant name, Yahweh. That's what capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is when you look at that in your Bible. It's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And it indicates that she was in a special relationship with Him. Now, Cain and then his brother Abel are the first children born to the first man and woman. And there's a reminder here. God is the Lord of life. He's the one who grants children to us, no matter how much we exercise control over childbearing. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to exercise some control, but inevitably we trust God to give children. Even those who are hoping to adopt are trusting God to give them children. If you're married, you're thinking about these things. And I wanna encourage you, Trust the Lord. Look to Him. Wait on Him. Don't stop believing that He's good and He loves you, even if it's not happening on your timeline. Now, verses 2 through 7 then set up a contrast between Cain and Abel. Abel, it says, was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Now, you might notice that these are like the two vocations that God had given to Adam and Eve in the garden. God had told Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden. And here we have their sons doing those two different things, working and keeping. And verse 3 then describes the two brothers worshiping God by bringing an offering. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, it says, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, we might not be able to tell a difference between these two offerings, but there might be a clue for us in that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. An Israelite reading this in Moses' day would recognize that Abel clearly brought his best, while Cain's offering is not described in that way. But regardless of whether or not we can see a difference in their offerings, God most certainly did. The second part of verse 4, it says, And the Lord 
had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, make, make no mistake, Cain wasn't just frustrated and annoyed with himself. The words here indicate that Cain was livid. He was red in the face. Imagine someone yelling and being so worked up that they can't calm down. That's the state of mind and emotion that Cain was in. If you're not a Christian, yet you believe that there is a God, do you believe that God has the right to determine and dictate to us, His creatures, how He is to be worshipped? Do you believe that He has that right? Some of my friends who are followers of other religions have often said to me, Brian, we worship the same God. All the religions are basically directing people to worship God, but just in different ways. So what really matters is the intentions of the heart and whether or not it makes you a better person or not. But the Bible is full of instructions about how God demands to be worshipped. And there are very, very serious consequences for not worshiping Him rightly. That's called false worship. And false worship is condemned by God. And false worshipers will be judged. And when we consider another religion, like, say, Islam, we see that the Quran and the sayings of Muhammad are also filled with instructions for how God is to be worshipped according to Islam. There are practices that are acceptable to God and others that are not. Now, most religious texts would not agree with the idea that God only cares about the intention of your heart in worship. Friends, be careful that you're not simply determining how you want to worship God. You could be fooling yourself. You could be deceiving yourself. The consequences are big. Jesus even warned that on the day of judgment, people would appear before Him recounting all the things that they did to worship Him, only to find out that it wasn't pleasing to Him. Instead, He said to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. But what was wrong with Cain's offering? Our first clue is that he got angry when he was rejected by God. He felt it was unjust and unfair that his offering was rejected. And when we look in the Bible, what does God admire and demand in His worshipers? Isaiah 66, 2 says, But this is the one to whom I, the Lord, will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So it's a humble and contrite attitude. Contrite means having sincere regret. So humility and contrition are characteristics, by the way, of people who have true faith. Humility and contrition. And the New Testament spells out clearly what was wrong with Cain and right with Abel. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In addition, our reading 
This morning, it's in your bulletin, 1 John 3, 11 through 18. It speaks directly about Cain's wickedness. Let me quote to you from verse 12 in that passage again. It says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. But despite Cain's wickedness, God doesn't just dismiss him. He reasons with him. God instructs Cain. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary, some translations say, to you, but you must rule over it. Some of your translations may say its desire is for you or contrary to you or against you. They all mean basically the same thing. But it's interesting to notice this, that disobedience to God actually first happened in the prior chapter in Genesis, Genesis 3, but here in chapter 4, for the first time, it's called sin. It's the first time we see that word in the Bible sin. God is telling Cain right here in this little conversation what sin is like. Sin is crouching at the door, he says. I wonder if you've ever been to a game park in Africa or maybe just seen predators attack their prey on television or maybe on YouTube. I think I've watched a few of those. Facebook knows that I like watching them. They keep giving me more predator versus prey videos to watch. I've been watching another series on Netflix. It's actually called The Hunt. It's not for the faint of heart. And it's about how predatory animals hunt other animals. Um, And uh, the big cats like lions and cheetahs and leopards and tigers, they're fascinating to watch to me. They have to sneak up on their prey walking without a sound, and when they get close, they crouch very low to the ground with all their muscles tensed and ready, and then they leap in a flash, and if they get their teeth sunk into their prey, they will not let go. Brothers and sisters, that is what sin is like. It will stalk you, it will creep up on you, and suddenly it will sink its teeth into you, and it won't let go until it's devoured you. Sin is not your friend. You can't tame it, and you ignore it at your own peril. And you shouldn't play with it. Sin is not like a house cat that you play with and then only get nipped when the playing gets a little too rough. No. Its desire is to dominate you, to have control over you, and in the end, to completely destroy you. Like God's instruction to Cain, you must rule over it. Now, in verse 8, we see the tragedy of the first murder. Imagine that. Sin has just come into the world in the last chapter of the Bible and murder in the first family. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. 
The sin of chapter 3 has taken root and it's worsened in just one generation to the point of becoming murder. Now sin has caused death to an innocent party. Cain was angry with God for rejecting his offering and bitter and jealous toward Abel. Listen again to 1 John 3, 12 and 13. It says, remember, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And the next verse says this, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Church, don't get surprised when you act in godly and righteous ways and the world hates you for it. Don't be surprised. Sometimes we act in kindness and we act selflessly, perhaps in our workplace or school, and and people appreciate it. And that's wonderful. Or maybe we stand up for someone who's being mistreated and, and people applaud what we do. That's good. But beware. Beware the love and admiration of the world is fickle. It can come and go, and sooner or later, if you live for Christ in the world, you will experience the hatred of the world, just as Cain hated Abel for his righteous offering. We don't strive to live righteous lives to please the world. No, we strive to live righteous lives to please God. Ask yourself this question. Am I willing to live for Christ in the world even when the world hates me for it? Living for Christ in the world will be costly. You may lose the friendship of people that you thought were real friends. You may be overlooked for a promotion. Your non-Christian spouse may get angry with you for the fact that you follow Christ. It cost Abel his life. And it was worth it. No one else may know what mistreatment that you're facing as a cost for living for Christ, but God knows. He sees all. And God knew what happened to Abel as well. In verse 9, he approaches Cain and he asks, where is Abel your brother? You know, that sounds just like the question that God asked Adam. Where are you, Adam? Cain is intending to avoid God's question. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? His answer is dishonest and arrogant. He knows exactly what happened to his brother. And God had intended for Cain to be his brother's keeper. To keep here and in God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the garden, it meant to guard, to protect And surely God intended that Adam guard and protect Eve and vice versa, and that they would teach their children to do the same for one another. But rather than guard and protect Abel, his brother, he murdered him. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, we have responsibilities toward one another to protect and guard one another from the deceptions of sin and the temptations of the world and the attacks of Satan. That's why we take membership in the church seriously. Of course, we want to be helpful and protective to all Christians that we encounter, all people for that matter. But when we entered into membership in the church, we formally committed to lovingly watching over each other's lives to guard and to protect one another. 
So the formality of membership makes it clear who's agreed to those responsibilities. And so our church covenant reminds us when we recite it together, when we take the Lord's Supper or when we gather for membership meetings, that we have responsibilities in one another's lives. Our church covenant says we will walk together in brotherly love, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully warning, rebuking, and admonishing one another when necessary. Brothers and sisters, who in the church are you close enough to in relationship to exercise watchfulness over? Can you name them? And are you willing to, in brotherly love or sisterly love, to warn, rebuke, or admonish in order to protect a fellow, fellow church member from sin or temptation? And what about letting people watch over your life? Let me share with you three things that I think are necessary for us to faithfully watch over one another's lives. At least this is a start, these three. First of all, we have to meet with other church members regularly. We have to be with them. If we don't spend time with one another, there's no way that we'll know what's happening in each other's lives. It's simple. Stay away from Christian fellowship with church members and watching over each other's lives becomes impossible. It's impossible. We have to meet with one another regularly. Secondly, we have to share the details of our lives with one another, including our sin struggles. We can meet up and talk about the weather or our latest travels or how tired and busy we are, or we can talk about our walk with the Lord or our relationships with one another and our sin. To never be transparent with each other prevents us from carrying out our responsibilities for one another. And thirdly, we have to pray for one another regularly. Praying for one another is one way that you can serve every single member in this church, even if you don't know them very well. And as our church grows, you won't. You won't know everyone very well in this church. Praying for one another cultivates love for each other and watchfulness over each other's lives. And the simplest way to do that, of course, is with the directory. Pick a psalm or maybe another passage in the New Testament or even in the Old and pray for those things that you learn about God or you learn about people or maybe warnings for people, directions for people not to go in. Pray for those things for each person, maybe on one page of the directory a day. It really would only take you five to ten minutes to do that. Church, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. Now, for those of you who are not members of the church, you're always welcome here. And you may be still evaluating whether God wants you to commit to this local body of believers, those of you who have been coming for some period of time. But don't delay too long. Don't imagine that simply listening to sermons is enough for you to be protected like the Scripture describes for you to be protected as a Christian. The Scripture describes committed involvement in a community of faith as the right environment for spiritual growth. That's what it describes. 
you'll be benefited and you will benefit others as God intended if you set out to become a member in a local church. Now, God knows about Cain's sin and he confronts him with it and he tells him the consequences. And it reminds me of the J.C. Ryle quote. J.C. Ryle was a famous bishop in Liverpool, England, and he said this, the eye of God, think of that, everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone or in a crowd, the eye of God is always upon you. The eye of God is on Cain as well. Look with me at verse 10. He says, and the Lord said, what have you done? That's like what God asked to Eve in chapter 3. Cain seems unwilling here even to admit to his sin, and so God points it out clearly to him. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The ground was cursed when Adam sinned, but now Cain himself is cursed from the ground for his sin. Cain responds that his, his punishment is just too much. Look at verses 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Think about it for just a minute. God could have immediately destroyed Cain for his sin of murdering his brother, but he didn't. And yet Cain thinks his punishment is too much. He's taken another man's life, his very own brother, and yet he complains that he'll not see the Lord's face, which was going to be a source of life and joy. And as he wanders, he'll be at risk of being killed, he complains, perhaps maybe by a relative of Abel. Again, the Lord is kind and merciful to Cain in reality. He says that he'll put a mark or a, a sign on Cain so that anyone who finds him and thinks of killing him will know that the vengeance of God will come upon him sevenfold. Seven times the punishment that Cain received. And lastly, we see in verse 16 that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled east of the land of Eden. Cain's unrepentant sin resulted in him leaving the presence of the Lord. And the same is true for us. Unrepentant sin is a step away from the mercy and the grace of God. It's a step out of His love and grace. But to repent of our sin and trust in God's promises is a step into obedience and a step into God's love and grace. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can keep your sin and yet stay close to God. Now, I feel it would be a mistake to leave this section without pointing out perhaps the simplest way to apply this passage's truth to each one of us. <clears throat> There's probably not a person in the room that doesn't have unresolved conflict in your immediate family or perhaps in your extended family. 
And those conflicts usually begin with the same kinds of sins, in our hearts at least, that resulted in the murder of Abel. If you're a Christian and you have any responsibility in keeping that conflict alive, you need to examine your heart. You need to repent of that sin and reconcile with your family member as best as possible and as soon as possible. God's intention is that we love and live in peace with our family members. Do you need to do that? Don't let it go unresolved on your part. Your family member might not be willing to reconcile with you. You can't control that. But you can ask for forgiveness if you've sinned against them. And you can attempt to put things right. Lastly, I want to speak to those of you who are youth, those of you who are young. Have you ever felt jealousy and you've worked to get back at a sister or a brother? Maybe you've gone out of your way to annoy or pester your sibling? Have you ever taken out your anger on a cousin or a niece or a nephew? I have a little sister. I did that just for fun, and it was sin, and it's sin for you too. No matter how normal you think it is, the answer is not to ignore it and excuse it, and it's not to complain about any punishment that your parents have given you because of it, like Cain complained. If you consider yourself a Christian, again, I'm speaking to those of you who are young, the youth you will recognize it as sin, confess it to Christ, and seek His forgiveness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you too. It's not just for grown-ups. You're not really a Christian if you simply think you are because your parents are and you attend church. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and He died for our sins. But you can only have your sins washed away, only have them forgiven, only live as a true Christian if you see your sin, confess your sin, and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers. I encourage you to do that today and repent of pestering and getting angry with and sinning against your sibling. Unfortunately, despite God's kindness and mercy to Cain, His warning for him beforehand and His reasoning with him afterward did not bring Cain to a point where he repented of his sin. Rather, his sin spread in society. And that's the second point this morning. Unrepentant sin will spread in society. Unrepentant sin will spread in society. The first point was about verses 1 through 16. This second point is about verses 17 through 24. Look again at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so Cain was married, and with his wife he bore a son. And our text goes on to list five generations of descendants of Cain. Now, we don't know if these are the only descendants of Cain. It's unlikely that these were the only children that these men had that are listed in this chronology. But they are the ones that our author wants us to know about. And there's a reason. Because we learn more about the whole 
extended family from that fifth-generation son named Lamech and his family. In verse 19, we see this, the deepening and the spreading of sin. First of all, in 19, we see the distortion of marriage. Lamech takes two wives. Now, it was wrong. It was sin. And we'll find this, that throughout the book of Genesis, the author doesn't necessarily make statements assessing or judging the actions of the people and the characters in Genesis, even the people that we should sometimes look up to, people like Abraham, people like Jacob, people like Joseph. He doesn't, the author doesn't come right out and say, and so we know polygamy is a sin, period. That verse isn't there. But we know because God intended back in chapter 2 for one man and one woman to become one flesh. And so to have two wives is a twisting and a violating of marriage, and it's what we call polygamy. We knew from Genesis 3.16 that there would be a sinful tendency for husbands and wives to try and manipulate and dominate each other. And now there will be even more of that when a man takes two wives. And we see lots of that trouble throughout Genesis. We'll, we'll come across it over and over again as we make our way through. The trouble and the strife that it causes is amazing. Joanne, my wife, once asked a local Emirati friend whether she thought that it was okay for a man like her husband to take another wife. Her answer? No woman wants this. Even though we see Lamech's sin of polygamy, we also see mixed into these verses common grace of God in the variety of skills and talents that He gives to all people. Some of Lamech's sons had skills in raising livestock. That's in verse 20. Some of them were skilled musicians. That's in verse 21. Some of them were gifted metal workers. That's in verse 22. All people, despite their sin, are blessed by God in so many ways. They're given life. They're placed in families. They have skills and they have intellect. And they often experience joy and satisfaction in various aspects of their lives. And all of this is a gift from God. That's who it comes from. It's called common grace, because it's common to man, even men and women who never acknowledge even that God exists. Even if you're, well, God shows kindness and love to every single person we see there. And we, even as Christians, can praise God for the kindness that He shows in the good gifts that He's given to the people around us. We can praise Him for those things we see in the people around us. Even if you're not a Christian, do you see that the very fact that you woke up this morning, that you had breakfast, and that you're drawing breath now is God's kindness to you? But the account of Lamech's family ends with a description of deepening sin. Lamech boastfully calls for his wives to listen to him, and he sings a song or recites a poem saying, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech was an arrogant man. Lamech was a vengeful man. He looks back on his ancestor Cain, the first murderer, and he boasts that his revenge is so much greater than what God declared Cain's would be back in verse 15. If it's sevenfold for Cain, he says, then it will be seventy-sevenfold for me, says Lamech. This is like an arrogant athlete in the pregame interview promising to dominate his opponent. Or it's like a proud politician thumping their chest at their election win and disrespectfully bragging about their superiority over the other candidate. And it's like a 10-year-old bully screaming on the playground, intimidating threats about what he'll do to anyone who challenges him. It's all the same thing. Two things. Vengeance is never in our hands as Christians. We understand that we're not the final authority of anyone. Yes, God has given governments and courts and laws to restrain evil and to hand out right punishments for those who take advantage of others, and that's good. But vengeance is not ours personally to pay. Don't cultivate plans for vengeance and pay back to those who have done wrong to you. Don't do it. Don't dwell on how you'll get them back. Don't fantasize about it in your mind. Rather, forgive. Christians forgive because they're forgiven people. Our reading in Matthew 18 this morning ended with Peter asking Jesus, if a brother sins against him, how many times should he forgive him? He says, up to seven. Peter thought that was generous. Jesus says, 77 times. Now, it might have been that Jesus was actually thinking of Lamech's 77-fold vengeance from Genesis chapter 4. Let me ask you, Christian, how many times has God forgiven you? Ah, see how that works? In addition, we see in Lamech, and it's implied in all of Cain's descendants, sin that's increased and spread throughout a family and down through the generations. Those of you who are mothers and fathers, another reason for you to repent of sin and seek God's forgiveness is the likelihood that your unrepentant sins will find their way to your children and their children unless you fight it now. We're imitators of each other. Children learn to be grown-ups by imitating us. What's the example that you're setting for them? Recognizing sin, confessing it, repenting and trusting in Christ for forgiveness and transformation and change? Or is it excusing sin, never confessing, carrying on as if everything's okay? Parents, teach your children to repent and trust in God's promises by demonstrating it in front of them, speaking about it to them, showing them what it means to walk in God's ways. 
Fortunately, our passage doesn't end on this note in Lamech's family. There's a note of hope in verses 25 and 26, and that brings us to our third and final point. God offers hope to those who call on Him in faith. God offers hope to those who call on Him in faith. Verse 25 begins like verse 1, and it begins like verse 17, with a husband knowing a wife. This time it's Adam and Eve again. And like verse 1 started with a hopeful exclamation by Eve when Cain was born, she once again declares her hope about the birth of Seth. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, I don't think it's an accident that Eve uses the word offspring when she joyfully declares Seth to be a gracious replacement for her murdered son, Abel. Think back to Genesis 3, verse 15, the promise of God to the man and the woman. He said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She sees Seth as possibly being the one who would battle the serpent's offspring and win, defeating sin and death. And the author, at least, confirms to us that Seth and his line would be different than Cain's. The last line points to Seth's faith and those who came after him. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, it says. The phrase, to call on the name of the Lord is a way of describing people who drew near to Yahweh, the covenant-making God, to talk to Him and trust in His promises. That describes Seth and his line. Whereas Cain and his descendants sunk further into sin, Seth and his family were marked by a relationship with Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Cain departed the presence of the Lord, But Seth and his line drew near in faith, just like Abel. Do you see that the battle that God announced in Genesis 3.15 has now begun in chapter 4? The offspring of the serpent is at war with the offspring of the woman. Abel was a man of faith and offered a righteous offering. Cain listened to the voice of the serpent and refused to repent of sin. And it ended in bloodshed and death. Through his faith, Abel demonstrated that he was an offspring of the woman. And through his unrepentant sin, Cain demonstrated that he was the offspring of the serpent. And the battle is on. And though Abel was killed, the man of faith fell. God appointed another son, Seth, who would call on the name of the Lord just like He appointed Jesus, His only Son, thousands and thousands of years later. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and in Him the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15 was finally fulfilled. He would be like Abel, only full of faith in His Father God, only righteous in His life of worship. He would be like Seth, in that he was appointed and called on the name of the Lord from his childhood. 
Like Abel, he was struck down by those who followed the voice of Satan. His blood was shed. But where Abel's blood was said to have cried out to God for justice, Jesus' blood cries out to God for mercy. We sometimes sing a hymn by Charles Wesley that's titled, Arise, My Soul, Arise. And in one verse, it describes Jesus' blood crying out on our behalf. Five bleeding wounds He bears, it says, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive Him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive Him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus' blood washes everyone clean of their sin who repents and trusts in Him. God raised up Jesus, and He's speaking to you this morning through this passage. In the life of Cain and Lamech, and in that of Abel and Seth. Do you see the two ways that you can go in life here in this passage? One way is to continue in your sin. It will only deepen and spread and ultimately result in judgment before God. That's the way of Cain and Lamech. The other way is to repent of your sin and put your faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the way of Abel and Seth. That's the only way to be given. That's the only way to break the dominion of sin and death. The battle is on. And you're in the middle of it whether you want to be or not. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So, brothers and sisters, friends, I hold out to you Jesus Christ, the only one who offers a sure hope of eternal life to all who trust in Him. Romans 6, verses 9 through 11 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can repent and trust in him today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the blood of Jesus poured out for us on the cross. We thank you that his prayers, even happening now, are effective prayers for us. They strongly plead for us, and his blood in essence, in effect, says, forgive them, Lord, forgive them. I have ransomed them with my life. I have saved them by my blood, and they are forgiven and are mine forever. Thank you, Lord God, for what you've done for us in Christ. Amen.